This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. All right, episode number 142 of Play by Playcast is with ESPN's Carl Ravitch. Thanks as always for the subscribe, the stream, the download, however you're listening to this here podcast. My name is Joel Godet, and this is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters. Hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. Professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, process, stories, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. It's that time of year, folks. I said it yesterday, not yesterday, I said it last week on the pod. Uh, Got a little bit going on now that we are into March with college basketball season. But, like, this is the fun of it. Like, I'm exhausted. It's 1 o'clock in the morning as I record this because... For some reason, three years in, I haven't figured out how to pre-record these yet. Um, like I'm exhausted, but it, it's exhilarating. Just got off my five games in five days kick. Had gymnastics on Friday, basketball Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday um, in Michigan, the other side of Michigan, Texas, the other side of Texas, and then back up in Michigan. Uh, and then I had a day off. Then I hit the road again, and I'm currently coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for some more basketball, uh, doing the Atlantic 10 Women's Basketball quarterfinals uh, today as you listen to this, and the semifinals tomorrow. It's nuts, but I wouldn't change it for the world, and that's the fun part about what we do and why we do this, um, is that, like, this is cool. And, like, I feel like... We ask on this podcast all the time about, like, how people manage their time and, like, travel horror stories and how you prep on the go and how you do all... Like, I feel like for the first time, I've experienced, like, that that lifestyle of what it's like to be one of these, like, full-time network guys. And, and like, not everything I did was... like I, I, Three of the games I did this past week were not network games. It was just Ball State and, and an Eastern Michigan gymnastics thing mixed in there. But, like, bouncing around and traveling from game to game and living in the airport and just doing prep and, and being on all the different conference calls and, like, just doing it and, and being immersed in that and then getting a day off and getting re-immersed in it for the A-10 and, um, you know, working with a partner that I've never worked with before for the quarterfinals and getting on the same page with her. Uh, and then like still getting the emails down the road that next week I've got, you know, two more tournaments coming up. Uh, and then with ball state stuff, I've got a baseball game and, and a men's volleyball game that I've still got to worry about like two weeks out and booking talent to do that, finding the, the color people to do that and, and finding the students that are going to do sidelines and working with our producers to make sure everything's in line. Like it's just bonkers, but it's super fun and exhilarating. And the coolest part is that at the end of the day, I get to sit down in a chair and do college basketball in March with the CBS Sports Jingle. And there is nothing better this time of year than doing a basketball broadcast and hearing the da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Like, it's the sickest, most intoxicating feeling ever uh, when that music comes on and you realize that, like, damn. All right, let's go to work. It's just, uh, it's really cool, and uh, and it makes it all worth it. So, 
Whew, been a lot of fun. I wrote a Peloton today, too, for the first time. Just throw that into the mix. CBS Sports Network is great because they put you up in these, like, like sometimes it's the Hampton Inn. Uh, but, you know, today I'm in the Kimpton in Pittsburgh, which is, like, there was a birdcage around my light fixture of a chandelier directly next to my bed, which has a felt green upholstered headboard. Like, what? I, I feel like I'm in the middle of an, like an Agatha Christie novel. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, and the gym's great. They had Pelotons. Never rode one. Wanted to find out what the hype was about. It's basically Sean T on a bike, uh, but it was cool. Did it once. Don't know if I'll do it again, but I rode a Peloton. Throw that into the mix. All right. Let's get into the conversation. Carl Ravitch is our guest. And I said last week that I'm doing my first ever baseball on television um, in two weeks. So, selfishly, I wanted to pick the brains of uh, some baseball TV guys on the podcast. Uh, We've got Carl this week, uh, Rich Waltz will be with us next week, uh, former voice of the Marlins. But I wanted to get a little bit more insight into how some of the the best TV play-by-play guys go about approaching baseball on television more so than they would on radio, but also how they approach it differently than basketball or football or anything else they do on television because it is such a unique sport to the medium with such an ability to tell stories and let pictures speak for themselves uh, and so on down the line. So uh, I wanted to be able to sit down and talk to Carl Ravitch about uh, his approach to calling baseball on television and his background as well. We'll get into all of that. Um, Started out in television sports, made his way to ESPN from Harrisburg. He was in Binghamton before that. He went to college at Ithaca and then obviously worked his way up the ranks at ESPN, uh, longtime host of Baseball Tonight, and since 2011 has been doing play-by-play and now pretty much is just uh, exclusively a play-by-play guy um, for the mothership. So uh, we'll lay that as the groundwork. Carl Ravitch is our guest this week here on PXPCast. Sit back, relax, enjoy, and uh, <laughs> if you're anything like me right now, uh, namaste, breathe. <laughs> we'll talk to you on the other side. I would say it's making sure that you know the players, that there's no uh, confusion as to who's playing, what position, what the batting order is, and how to pronounce their names. I think uh, credibility is a huge part of being a good broadcaster, and generally the people that are watching the games know their teams, know their players. Um, And if you're pronouncing somebody's name wrong, or you're constantly suggesting that uh, Dustin Pedroia is playing shortstop when in fact he's playing second base, your credibility has exploded, and that would be uh, probably the uh, last game that you end up calling. So at its very basic level, I think that you need to know the names of the players, the positions they play, the batting order they're in. And then subsequent to that, I think uh, you know your, your goal, if you're doing a baseball game on television, is to uh, let the viewer in on certain aspects of the team or the players that they wouldn't necessarily know. So you maximize the relationships you have with those uh, people and you tell those stories during the game. There's a lot of time during a baseball game on television to share those types of things, which make the game far more interesting for the viewer than to ultimately end up doing radio on TV, which is completely unnecessary. What's the best way to approach that Um, from the standpoint of, I feel like everybody always says, you know, you do all this preparation and 85% of it winds up on the cutting room floor. Uh, When you do baseball, it is obviously such a storytelling medium, uh, and then particularly more so on television. Uh, How do you measure out exactly 
And I guess what's kind of your plan, uh, exactly what you want to use, how you want to use it, how you don't force feed it, even when you're given such a blank canvas as compared to other sports? Yeah, I think that, um, at least in my case, um, you know, depending on who's sitting next to you in that particular game, for the most part, I work with Tim Kirkshen and uh, Eduardo Perez, obviously uh, one, the son of a Hall of Famer who played Major League Baseball, the other somebody has covered it for, you know, three or four decades, that there really is no direction um, that the conversation can't go in where there won't be a good story uh, or anecdote um, that they will share. So depending on on those people, I think that dictates, you know, where you're willing to go. Um, I think if it's David Ross sitting next to me and we know his experience with the Red Sox and the Cubs and this catcher, um, and as a as a teammate and as a world champion, that you can go in different directions based on what's happening on the field and different situations. Uh, so I think a lot of that is dictated by the people's expertise sitting next to you, as much as it is, you know, your own gathering of stories to tell from pregame meetings, as well as, you know, from the number of, of interactions you have with the different players over the course of a day or a season or years. And I think. You know, in our position, we we benefit greatly from having done it so long that you have, you know, a library of resources that you can literally just call up when something occurs in a game. Uh, you can look over at uh, Eduardo or Tim and see if they have a comment to make. So I think a lot of that is dictated by the people sitting there. And I think it has to do with your own self-interest. I've always used um, myself as a fan as much as a broadcaster to think if I were sitting at home, uh, you know, or my sons were sitting at home watching, would they, what would they want to know about this particular player, this particular situation? Is it interesting to me and hope that my judgment on what's interesting to me would be interesting to uh, uh, at least a, hopefully a large portion of the people that are watching. I like there was a quote that you had um, awful announcing had it uh, where you said you try to mine oil from the experts um, and and anticipate that next thing that people are thinking at home. Um, how do right. you how do you do that in a way that isn't question asky, if that makes sense? So that you're not just sitting there interviewing David Ross about the game you're watching, but you're having that general conversation, and and it seems uh, comfortable and natural. I think you, I think I would call on my own experiences to um, frame it in the sense of I remember watching. Um, you know, Derek Cheater in a similar situation, do this. Uh, Eduardo, why do you think that Glaber Torres played it that way? So that it's, so that it's part conversational and part, uh, part question and answer. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, and again, this, this is, this is the part where, um, you know, experience plays a huge role in it is that you do have that, that vast amount of history somewhere in your head. And if you kind of, press the right button and call up the right page, you can then cite from your own experience something that leads or contributes to the story as opposed to always eliciting a story from somebody else. You add to the conversation. You don't just generate it by asking questions. And, you know, I think the, I think the biggest and most important aspect of being a broadcaster um, that gets overlooked is listening. So many times um, somebody in that booth will say something which will lead to, uh, you know, a, a story or a road that you had never anticipated traveling down. I think the greatest example of recent time for me was we were doing a Vanderbilt uh, basketball game and they were taking on Kentucky and it was a blowout. 
and I was sitting with Jimmy Dykes and uh, Emmanuel quickly, a guard for Kentucky, was on the free throw line. And part of the research uh, that I had done and the conversations I'd had, I'd learned that he played the piano, the guitar, and some other instrument. So he played multiple instruments. And I asked Jimmy if he was an instrument player. And uh, lo and behold, the next 10 minutes, in fact, the next 20 minutes were dedicated to his old efforts to become a country music singer in Nashville. <laughs> and he, he, he cut a record, and the audio guy in the truck I think went on YouTube and found the record, you know, this, this long, long dead record. And uh, that led to 20 minutes of what clearly for the viewer was way better than listening to uh, a bad basketball game or watch a bad basketball game. And you got to learn a lot about Jimmy Dykes. And it was very funny and very entertaining. So I'm curious, where's the line that you, you walk on that too, in terms of like, obviously that is, entertaining and, and probably more entertaining um but in, in terms definitely, of definitely more <laughs> in terms of being able to um still pay credence to you know the the person who is for whatever reason still tuned into the game and their team's getting beat by 20 um and yeah, not, I, not just look, divulging I th- yeah and i think um you know uh, not that this is ever used as a barometer but mm-hmm. clearly when you have social media as uh as as sort of this this um, constant eyeball on what you're doing or saying, you're going to recognize, and this is a typical and classic case, where you were talking about Kentucky basketball, where they are as rabid a fan base as you can find, and you're ignoring Emmanuel quickly making a free throw because you're talking about Jimmy Dykes singing. Um, the, the feedback that we got that night was not, hey, would you please pay attention to the game going on? There's a game happening. <laughs> you know, that, that didn't happen. So sure. to me, that was an indication we, we, were, we were sort of dealing with the right move there. But there's oftentimes, and I tend to uh, squash that line of how much attention do you need to pay to a game. Radio and TV are incredibly different. Um, television, when you watch it with a younger generation now, is sort of a passive-aggressive pursuit. They're passively watching while aggressively working on their own cell phones. So um, you've got to come up with creative conversations that will have them look up from their phone for a few minutes, similar to the sound of a bat hitting a a ball, because that generally will cause somebody to look up, and as soon as they see it's a high pop to left field, they'll go back to their phone. So we've got to create interesting uh, anecdotes and stories that will at least get them to, you know, lift their head and listen for a while. And I think uh, the people I work with provide that uh, way more often than they, than they swing and miss at that. I like that a lot. I like that. I don't, I, I'll be honest. I don't pay much attention to, uh, Hey, can you please focus on the game? I think, <laughs> I think 30 years of being a sports fan, I'm pretty good about judging when it's an important part of a ball game that we got to focus on the game. Mm. I don't think we've, I don't think we've missed, uh, you know, a, a moment in the game because we were talking about uh, Tim Kirchner's uh, antique collection or Jimmy Dyke singing. Like, I, I get it. We're not doing that at this point in the game, but we're we're pretty in tune with when we got to stay focused on the game. I like the passive aggressive. Uh line slash mentality <laughs> thanks um what's the prep like from an from the standpoint of talking all of that out ahead of time I mean, and some of that just happens on the fly but um how much will you sit down with 
whoever you're working with that night as a duo or as a group and talk out what you're interested in this game versus just having conversation and then something sticks in your mind that, hey, this might be useful if it ever comes up on air? Yeah, we. I would say that um, for every baseball game, we will probably, uh, if we're in that city and all together, uh, go to breakfast with the producer of the game, and we will go over topics that uh, are, are of interest and relative to that game, whether it be something that happened the night before, whether it be something in baseball that you want to talk about. Um, so we'll have subjects, but I would say, um, you know, in a nine-inning game that takes three hours, you know, you're basically planning, I don't know, 10 minutes. And the rest of it is the ball game and the different uh, the different roads that these conversations take you down. And it's all based on what happens in the game. I mean, it, if there's something entertaining in the game, if somebody gets hurt, uh, you're, you're really tapping into the experience and expertise that these guys have, as well as your own experiences, uh, to make to make conversation that's interesting. And, you know, to me, if you, you know, you're as old as I am, you grew up watching baseball, you realize that the Phil Rizzutos of the world, the Joe Garagiolas, even the Vince Scullys, uh, they, they, they did, they chronicled the game, but boy, did they go off in directions that you'd never expect them to go on. And it entertained more than just diehard sports fans. You know, ideally, we're trying to capture, we, we already have the audience that's watching the game. Yeah. Like the Red Sox fan is watching the game. We got them. Uh, the key is how do you keep the people that they are sitting there with, their children, uh, their spouses, you know, their grandparents. The Little League World Series is like the greatest example of all that stuff because that audience skews from, you know, six to to ninety six. You you get them all, and um, more people come up and talk about that uh, and how much joy is expressed over those telecasts, whether it's Julie Foudy or David Ross. Uh, no Mark Archie Parra sat there. Whoever has sat there, Terry Francona, they all go there and they all love it. Um, but the joy of that event comes through on television. And I remember even last year, David Ross and I were like, well, why, why do you think that that type of attitude and joy doesn't come across in a major league game? People always complain. It's just kind of slow and boring. And here we are laughing and giggling with kids. Why, why can't we take that to the major league level. And I think, I think to the degree we can, we do. I mean, that's certainly what I try to do. It's baseball. You know, there's enough, uh, there's enough lousy bad news going on that this is a, this is an escape. This is a relief. This is a release for people. And that's, that's always been been my goal. And thankfully the people that run the place have uh, allowed, you know, me to do that. And I just noticed the Red Sox have decided that uh, they want their radio broadcast are going to be a unique challenge to them, but they want their radio broadcast to be more conversational. That's that's the secret sauce for me is is conversation, not XO play by play old school stuff. Um, that's not how that's just not how I operate. Is there a secret and uh, is there a secret to making televised conversation sound natural? Just because there's I, I don't I feel like once the red light goes on, even if you're just being yourself, there's always some sort of inclination that you, you think. A little bit or is that just that comes with experience is that goes away and you just do the game you don't I think in the beginning yeah I think to your point I think in the beginning um young broadcasters are trying to figure out who they are um just try to find their authentic voice and I think after you know 26 years doing what I've been doing there 
you know, you do get to a place where you realize, you know what, I, I am accepted here. Um, they, they obviously have kept me this long, so they, there must be something I'm doing that they like. And I think when you get to that place, you become uh, incredibly comfortable in your own skin. And I know I'm surrounded by people, whether it's uh, Tim and Eduardo or Ross or uh, Laura Rutledge, who does the college basketball with me, or Jimmy Dykes. Um, yeah, if you can make them as a play-by-play or host feel uh, really comfortable, that's when you get the best material from them, that they don't feel like they, as you said, have to use all the notes and numbers they bring with them to the booth. The, the best ones bring very little. They bring their expertise. They bring their suitcase of experiences, and they unpack it over the course of a game. Uh, they leave certain items in the suitcase, and they, they are, are forced to take out certain ones because – the game or the moment dictates it. And when you're comfortable with who you are and the audience uh, accepts you and your, you know, your bosses accept you, it's, it's a very easy way to be comfortable and conversational and it doesn't feel forced. And I think you're right. You can tell who's, who's forced, who's not yet comfortable with themselves. And they're trying to make sure their voice is what it should be. And the call is perfect. And is this going to be on sports center? If I nail this call, mm-hmm. When you don't think about that stuff and you don't think about yourself, I think it allows you to be a lot more successful. People get intimidated when they're sitting next to somebody who wants to be perfect and wants you know, their voice to be heard and their message and their call. And uh, I, I would think that would eventually wear on other people. Like, dude, stop taking yourself so seriously. And I've never been accused of that, that's for sure. <laughs> that's like the imperfect business, imperfect job scenario. Yeah, yeah. Um. All of that said, this will be an ironic question, I guess, um, because you talked about how much of a suitcase you show up with. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about the Little League World Series and uh, how much of a suitcase you show up with to an event like that where, uh, I mean, it's it's all telling the story of these kids and no one knows it. Um, how much work goes into finding that story, mining that story, and, and how full does that suitcase get when you go into that? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the beauty of that one is that um, every year is new. Um, you, you just don't see the same uh, kids on those teams. It's very rare that one would be there one year and then come back the next. Sure. Um, you know, unlike Major League Baseball, where it's the same players generally, uh, they may be on different teams, but you know, you know their stories. In, in this case, and again, where ESPN is so great, um, you know, we have regionals and super regionals, and the producers are gathering uh, information on all those kids. And by the time those teams get to Williamsport, you know, there are huge folios on each team, and the storylines of the teams uh, are chronicled in front of you. So you're handed a huge research packet. And then uh, over the course of that 10 day period, you know, you go from Imagine speed dating. You know, you're, you're learning eight teams, and then by the time the two-week period is up uh, and you get to the uh, the serious dates, you, you know them really well. Like, we're, we're going to have another date with this team. I know them really well. You can tell the stories. But in the case of Little League, the stories are one part. The, the other part is is emphasizing and accentuating, you know, the, the, the joy of being an 11-year-old, 12-year-old kid. You know, that that's what comes across on the screen. And the directors and producers do an incredible job of showing their faces and the smiles and the giggles and the fact that they all make mistakes and that they can be upset about it and they can 
kind of laugh about it and high five each other. All all those emotions. It's it's not the broadcasters. It's the people in the trucks that are making sure that they come across on the screen, and then hopefully we don't interfere with that. We get out of the way of it, or we accentuate it. We point out, you know, the human aspect of being a 12-year-old on a stage like this, and different countries and all those things. So you, 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 you develop that suitcase as you're there. There's really not much you can do before that because they're coming from all over the world. Let me ask you about that production aspect of it. Um, obviously, they're, they're calling all the right shots, and you're just – I mean, we always say the, you know, the, the TV announcer is just the caption on the picture on the screen. Um, how do you make yourself the best partner to a producer, a director, or the rest of your technical crew um, mm. and, and fit best into the, the overall puzzle? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Uh, you know, my background was I started in uh, in college. I was at Ithaca College, and mm. then I went to small markets in Binghamton, New York, and a little bit bigger market in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and the beauty of those markets was, uh, especially in college, is where it began, is you get exposed to all different roles and responsibilities of the telecast. So you're, you're, you are in class um, forced to direct a newscast. Uh, you want to work on a newscast, uh, you have to start as a um, reporter. You have to start as somebody running teleprompter. You have to start as a cameraman. You go to Binghamton, New York, and you do, and I do weekend sports, and you have the camera on your shoulder, and you are taking pictures. You're getting the video of the football game or the soccer game or the girls' basketball game and bringing it back, and then you're editing it. So I think what happens to people like me, anyway, is you develop a huge appreciation for the roles and responsibilities of those people. And you become producer friendly in those situations because you understand this doesn't work without somebody who is laying it all out. It doesn't work without the audio guy. It doesn't work without the uh, woman running the camera. None of it works. And if you can, you can be able to put yourself in the shoes of those people um, and not the, you know, the prima donna talent or on-air person who thinks that they're the only important part of this. Um, I know that it makes you far more friendly to the entire crew than the off-putting on-air person who shows up and thinks that uh, their job is the only job that matters. So that, that's where all that came from, was from the small markets and, and recognizing that uh, the value of, of what you do is is only equal to the value of everybody. Um, that's important. And that's where, that's where that came from. And I know I've heard, you know, how producer friendly the people I work with are um, because many of us in front of the camera are often rightly accused of, of being pains in the ass. You know, it's not just about you. I've heard that about, about many uh, people that work in front of the camera. What are the, are Not there, a good reputation. You yeah, want to no. avoid that reputation. Yeah. Are there things that uh, – what are things you can do as a play-by-play guy to make a producer's life easier? Well, uh, you know, the, the best thing you can do is – and look, the, the director is a producer. The producer is a producer. The play-by-play guy is a producer. Mm-hmm. And communication is the most important thread between the three of them. Um, if the director has a shot of uh, – we did this in Omaha at a college world series. And again, it was probably one of those games that was just kind of dragging along. The director found a kid in the stands who, I don't know, must've been, I'm guessing 14 years old 
who ultimately got into a staring contest with the camera. I mean, the camera was kind of looking, and he just got into a staring contest with him. Yeah. So, you know, the goal of the play-by-play guy there is judging right away, is this funny? Is this good? Uh, and we kept kind of going back to it, and the kid would stare, and literally have a stare-down contest with the camera, is that, is that this is not about me, and it's not my voice and my call. I'm all in on what you think is good TV because you're an expert, and I trust you. The producer will tell you, stick with it. It's tremendous, and you all got to get on board by communicating. And similarly, if I said, "Did you see the, you know, did you see that shot of Calipari, you know, with his head on his, uh, his hands on his head?" Can you go back to that? The producer has faith that you know what decent television is. The director has the shot, and you've communicated how to get that out there for the viewer. So communication between the three uh, main principles, play-by-play guy, producer, director, is critical. What was the first play-by-play event you did for ESPN? Um, that's a good question. The first one I did, uh, I would imagine it was, I, you know, I think it might have been a, uh, believe it or not, like a Japanese, uh, the, I think it was a Tampa Bay Ray game in Japan um, with Peter Gammons, and we were doing it not from Japan, we were doing it from a booth at ESPN while the teams were in Japan at, at like maybe six in the morning. It was one of those uh, major league things that were over there. And I think because nobody thought anybody was really going to watch it. I think that was the first, I think that was the first play by play. I don't, I don't truly know the answer to that, but I'm kind of remembering that as being one of those where I was a little anxious about it. Cause I really hadn't done it before. You know, here we are. And that's, that's all I do now is play by play. What made you want to branch out into that? Um, well, there, I would say what made me want to branch out into it was, I, you know, the, the versatility is one thing, but we also, um, dramatically cut back in our studio presence when it came to baseball. Yeah. So, so the, the choice, the choice was, uh, you know, uh, the studio shows are, are shrinking and you recognize that the future, um, as far as audience is going to be in calling games and, uh, you know, again, the management and the producers were kind enough to afford me the opportunity to take what I did in the studio and basically bring it to the games. And it really was uh, an extension of the studio show. I mean, that's that's where the conversational stuff comes to yeah. it. Uh, when you're sitting on that studio show of Baseball Tonight, you're ultimately conversing with, you know, Reynolds and Cruck and Gammons and Kirkshin and Teixeira now and Ross and over the years – you know, 40 to 50 different analysts. Uh, you take that to a booth, and it's really a continuation of the program. You've built up the credibility from the people that used to watch the show, and it works. And I really like it. I mean, I really, I really do enjoy it. There's no doubt. There's a, there's a thrill to being at the event and uh, in immediacy that is different from doing the highlight shows in the studio or doing the college basketball halftime reports. And um, and that's what that's what led me to do that. And I'd say that I probably, you know, always wanted to get into it. I didn't know that I would get into it as much as I'm into it now, but I'm grateful that I am because I really I really find it to be about as gratifying a part of my career as I've ever had. I have two more questions for you. Um, and uh, one of them is a baseball play-by-play related question, and that's uh, how many – did you have to think about how many different ways you could call a home run uh, when, you no. do, when you do the derby? Yeah, uh, no, I definitely did not. I mean, again, that's another one of those. And I followed in the, you know, I followed in the footsteps of a guy that made a living off of 
describing home run calls in his own way. Yeah, true. Um, a lot of it was the back, 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 back stuff. Um, I just looked at I looked at the event and I look at television a little differently. Um, you know, everybody at home is seeing it. There's very little um, that that I personally feel that I'm going to come up with that people are going to be like, thank God. You know, he, he had that call on that home run, especially in a derby, where all they're doing is hitting balls over the wall. Uh, to come up with 25 different home run calls, you know, you can see them. I don't need to describe them all. When you get to the place where Bryce Harper's, you know, one away from winning it, you know, you, you realize, like, this is the this is the climactic point, and you can emphasize that. But during a home run derby, no, I don't. And certainly during a game in which you don't know if there's going to be one, three, none, or, or seven, do I say here? Here's the first one. Here, this is going to be the one I use of the second one. Here, I got number three lined up, and if we get into four, I got to make something up. I, I, I've never done. I've never done that. And I'm also one of those who I'm sure when you interview, as you continue doing this and interviewing different play-by-play people, mm. I, I, I'm one of those that look at the play-by-play person um, or the host of a show as somebody that that all they do is enhance the the pleasure of the viewer that the viewer is tuning in because of the teams that are playing or the athletes. And, you know, you, you have two different ways you can go as a play by play guy or a host. You're either going to make this less enjoyable or you're going to make the experience more enjoyable. Mm. And I've, I've always tried to err on the side of making it more enjoyable, which likely means, you know, doing less than it means doing more. They're there already. They're watching for a reason. If I can enhance that and they like me, it just makes that a more pleasurable experience. You know, it's like going to a good restaurant. If the meal is good, you're going to remember a little bit more, but you're already in the restaurant. You know what the food is you're going to get. It's like good service. My wife always says customer service is the X factor in all this because you know what food you're going to get. If they make the experience better, then you're going to go back. And if you can't make it better, just let the let the picture tell the story. Is basically exactly. Yeah. Like I don't. This isn't. I don't need to add here. <laughs> so many times, you know, you're told in this field lay out. You know, that means stop talking. Yeah. Last night at the Kentucky game, when they were rallying from 11 down, uh, that crowd there was enough. Pe- people needed to be caught up in that moment. Not something I'm saying. And you just literally stop talking, and that's where the producer will will say this is great let's get tight shots of faces let me see the bench you know the director will get the shots so everybody it's almost like nonverbal communicating you don't need to say anything and everyone knows what you're doing last thing i wanted to ask you carl was uh when your son decided to get into broadcasting um how much did that and did it at all help you at all when you have somebody going through the process and learning how to do this um just think about all those, like just the basics again, and to see him learning it, um, whether or not that made you think about things in a different way um, to watch somebody else go through it all over again. Um, I, I would say that um, it, it reminded me of what it was like when you started because, uh, you know, you spend 25 years at it and you learn <laughs> a great deal more when, when you're, you're brand new to it you realize that there are assignments you're not going to get and people are going to be critical and they're always going to offer you advice on how to do things. And perhaps you want to do it this way. Why do you say that? So uh, I'm very empathetic to that role where, you know, you're, you're fighting for the scraps of food on the table because there's so many other people doing it. And yet here I am and I'm getting so many of these wonderful assignments. And that, that comes from, that comes from years and years and years of experience. And a lot of times, 
Um, you know, when your children are born, they've missed those years and years and years. And their first exposure is to somebody working at ESPN. And that's just not how it works. You don't just start at ESPN. You start, as I said, in Ithaca, New York, at a cable station in Binghamton, New York, and then Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You, gotta, you, 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 learn, uh, you learn by doing, as opposed to the sense of entitlement that a lot of these younger folks, you know, uh, live, live with. We, we didn't have that, but they didn't get exposed to that. So now that he's being exposed to all of those things and others that, that are trying to get into this field are exposed to, there's a great deal of empathy. This is a, this is a very, very hard competitive field um, because it's, it's so wonderful. So many people want to do it. Uh, and you understand how fortunate you are to be in the position you're in. And, you know, the other the other aspect of of what he's observing in me is in spite of the fact that I've done it for 25 years, there's no slowdown because when you slow down, you know, you lose. And then there is no slowdown. We're doing games Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Uh, you're on the road all the time. Um, so next week coming up, I, I fly to Oxford, Mississippi Monday. I do a game in Oxford on Tuesday. I wake up Wednesday and fly to Gainesville, Florida. I do a game in Gainesville on Tuesday night. I drive from Gainesville to Fort Myers Tuesday night, get in around one, and do a Red Sox game at one o'clock the next day on Wednesday. Um, you know, people will be like, "What are you crazy?" Uh, but I think there's such a love affair with the job. Um, you, you need to you need to stay involved and invested in it. And if you start getting lazy, I mean, look, Vital, Dick Vital is the greatest example of that ever. Uh, here's a dude who doesn't need to do any of this stuff, and he is he is so passionate about it he wants to do every game and it would do every game if we'd allow him to do it that type of passion comes across on the screen and people know you're not doing it just because it's a job you're doing it because you love it and there's just we're, we're at both ends of the spectrum uh sam and myself he's he's beginning this journey and i'm uh you know i'm i'm square in the middle of the of the best part of it all right, that is Carl Ravitch joining us here on Play by Playcast. Uh, we'll leave it there because uh, it is late, and uh, I want to go to bed so I can get up and do these games tomorrow. Uh, but many thanks to Carl for taking the time and uh, hopping on episode 142 of Play by Playcast. If you listened to the episode, if you enjoyed it, do reach out to him on social media. Just drop him a line, tweet at him, say, like, hey, heard you on PXPCast. This was great. That was great. I got this from it. Uh, it goes a long way when uh, you let our guests know that. Um, something they said was beneficial to you. So certainly appreciate that. We'll see you next week. Rich Waltz will be our guest. Continue with the baseball conversation. Opening day is not that far away. This is PXP Cast. My name is Joel Gadette. The music is Marshmallow, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.